Hey, church family. So good to be with you in, on this Sunday and get together to worship God together and praise God together and grow together and hopefully grow in our relationship with Him. And I certainly just want to make sure that I remind you that we are meeting in person, have been meeting in person for the last several months now. And so we'd love to have you join us uh, to, to come back and worship with us at some point. Or if you've never worshiped with us, we, we'd love to have you. And I uh, hope that at some point you'll come back and, or come and, and worship with us. But we also know that uh, because of the times that we're in, not everybody is quite comfortable with yet, that yet or has some health concerns. And so we just want you to know that we, we are so thankful that you are joining us in whatever capacity uh, that you can, and, and thankful that we're able to offer, uh, offer this as a, as a means for, for those who can't be here or shouldn't be here uh, to, to be able to worship together with us. And so we're just so glad that you have chosen to join us to worship God together uh, today, and, and just glad that you're here. I uh, have been thinking about this this week, I've been thinking this week. My dad always said thinking, uh, me thinking, I guess, more so poignantly, it was a dangerous thing, but uh, that's what he always told me when I'd say, I was thinking, and he'd say, well, that's, that's a dangerous thing. But I was thinking, however dangerous may may be, and maybe you've thought about this before too, I was wondering, what would I have, what would I own, if I didn't know what everybody else had and what everybody else owned? I wonder how much influence what you have has on what I have. I also wonder, what would I want if I didn't know what everybody else, including you, had? I also wonder, how much more money would I have saved if I didn't know what you and everybody else spent their money on? And I also wonder how much money I would have given away to people who have less than I have if I didn't know what people who have more than I have had. Tongue twister a little bit, but my problem is this. I know too much. I, I know too much about what other people have, and specifically I know too much about what other people have that I don't have. And the interesting thing about me, certainly not about you, but about me, is that this information makes me dangerously discontent. In fact, this information has the potential to lure me into some very dangerous mindsets and attitudes when it comes to money and stuff, and it feeds this internal appetite. You know, by nature, an appetite really is never fully and finally satisfied. That's just the nature of an appetite. You satisfy it for a few moments, and then you're right back at the refrigerator or the pantry, right? You know, you know what I'm feeling. You never fully and, 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 and finally satisfy an appetite. And, and my desire for stuff, for money, for possessions, whatever it may be, is an appetite. And that appetite really never is fully and finally satisfied. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so basically, I, I think I need some counseling. And probably my guess is that I'm not alone in that. There's a word, though, for that, that, uh, that appetite that I just described for stuff and, and money. It's a word called greed. Now, one of the things about greed is that it's, a, that it's a lot easier to detect and to spot in other people than it often is in ourselves. Let me give you an example of this. Just raise your hand at home, wherever you're at, by yourself or with other people. Raise your hand if you know someone who is greedy. I'm not asking you to be judgmental, but you just know someone who 
tends to exhibit some greedy tendencies. Raise your hand. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you would say that you are greedy, <laughs> right? I'm guessing that more than a few hands went down on that second question. So you just proved my point. But in reality, the truth is we all have a tendency toward greed, toward that appetite for stuff. And Jesus knows this. That's why he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, watch out, beware, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life is not measured by how much one owns. Now, somebody might push back on that and say, well, actually, Jesus, that's exactly how life is measured in this world, by how much you own. You're measured by what neighborhood you live in, by what car you drive, by what clothes you wear, by what job you have. And that's true in the empires of the world. But Jesus is inviting us into a new kingdom with a different economy. And so if you're going to live in this new kingdom, which is if you're a Christian, you are called to live in this new kingdom. There's no, you know, no way around it. This is the kingdom you and I are called to live in. If we're going to live in this new kingdom, then you have to live by a different economic system. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, you cannot serve, in this kingdom, you cannot serve both God and money. There's only one master in this kingdom, and you cannot serve both God and money. You can't multitask here, Jesus says. You, you cannot do it, so don't even try. And, and Jesus talked about this a lot, not because he wanted money, but because he wanted disciples. And so if you're going to get a degree in the school of discipleship taught by Jesus, then a required course is what we're calling kingdom economics. And so in this series, we're looking at some basic principles for how to understand life in the kingdom, specifically when it comes to money and stuff. And last week we talked about Kingdom Economics 101, just the foundational Kingdom Economics 101. And it's this Kingdom Economics 101 is this God owns it all. God owns it all. That's, 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 you have to start there. That's the foundation. As we talked about this, a top button issue, right? If you mess up the top button, then every button down is going to be off. It's going to be wrong. And, and the same is true when it comes to how we view kingdom economics. That if we miss this, this principle of ownership, if we get it wrong, then everything else that we, that we think and, and we think we know about stewardship is going to be wrong. God asserts that he has a claim on everything. And as we talked about last week, that goes deep. There are some really serious implications that come out of that reality. If you didn't hear that teaching, if you didn't listen to that teaching, whether you weren't with us last week or weren't able to watch, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that teaching um, you could even stop now and go listen to it, but I would encourage you to go listen to it because that's so foundational for everything we're going to talk about throughout this series. And you, listen, you may not be totally sold on everything we talked about last week or everything that we're going to talk about throughout this series, but there is one thing that I think we can all agree on. You were born with nothing, and when you die, you will take nothing with you. There's a reason why you don't see a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it, right? So inevitably, what that means, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or buy into it fully or not, what that means is that everything you own is on loan. And that leads right into the second principle of kingdom economics. Kingdom economics 101, God owns it all, God owns everything. Kingdom economics 201 is this, manage God's 
trust fund. Manage God's trust fund. Because when we understand that we actually own nothing, as we talked about last week, then we realize that it's our responsibility to steward everything. Now, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage here because in our culture, we don't really use that word steward a whole lot. But in Jesus' day, day, that was a very common role in society. It was an agrarian society and you primarily made your wealth through farming, uh, through uh, livestock, things like that. And the owner of the estate would always hire a, a sharp, a responsible person to be his steward and to, to manage his estate, to manage his farm, his ranch, whatever you want to call it. And it wasn't uncommon for an owner to take a trip. And in those days, when you took a trip, you, you could often be gone for not just days, but weeks, months, even years sometimes. And while the owner was gone, that steward had total responsibility to take care of all that the owner owns. And the owner can't call or text or FaceTime or Zoom or Skype or email. He can't do any of those things. He's just going to have to trust that steward to take care of his estate. But when he comes back, because make no mistake, the owner is coming back. The first thing he's going to do is find that manager, that steward, and he's going to ask him, how did you take care of? How did you steward what I entrusted you with? And so a steward is somebody who manages the assets of an owner. By the way, stewardship really um, is the first command in the Bible. Stewardship is really the first command in the Bible. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. It says God made this and and God made that. And so Genesis 1 establishes that God owns everything. You know why God owns everything? Because God made everything. God created it all. He made everything. But at the end of that chapter, in verse 28, God then turns to man after he's created all these things. And he says, okay, now you, man, woman, you rule and have dominion. In other words, you take care of my world. You take care of the farm, the estate. The very first thing man is taught from God is to be a steward. And this has numerous implications for us, for them and and for us today. For example, this has implications for how we take care of the environment. Ecology is a spiritual matter because this is not your world. This is God's world. We sometimes think this is my father's world. Do we really believe that? Whether you believe that or not, it is his. It is is our father's world. And so we, we take care of this world that he's given to us. It has implications for how we use our time because you don't make time. It is a gift from God. And so he decides how much time you get. And so you decide how you're going to manage that time and you must steward it. It has implications for how we take care of our bodies because the Bible is clear. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So honor God with your bodies. That has implications for how we raise our kids and parent our kids because our kids are on loan from God. It has a, a myriad of implications. And certainly it also has huge, huge implications for how we manage our money, and our finances. We are to actively and responsibly take care of God's creation for God's purposes. That means we don't see ourselves as entitled, but rather we see ourselves as entrusted. Because in this kingdom, you don't measure a life by how much one owns. You measure a life by how one takes care of what God owns. 
And make no mistake, we're gonna be held accountable. Again, you don't have to like it, but this is the reality. We're going to be held accountable. And every one of the stories Jesus tells, the owner always comes back. And he always asks the question, did you manage well what I entrusted you with? So listen, Jesus is coming back. I've read the story. It's all in there. You know, so, so don't be surprised if you get to the end, you know, don't, don't say, well, I didn't know this was going to be on the test. I didn't, I didn't know there was going to be a test. It's in the syllabus, right? God's given us the book. He's given us the story. He's given us the syllabus. It's all in there. And God's question to each one of us is going to be, how did you manage what I entrusted you with? Because the owner's coming back and he's going to ask the question, how did you manage what I entrusted you with? With. So we're going to talk about that for a few moments today. What does it mean then to manage God's trust fund well? Because make no mistake, stewardship is not a program. It is a lifestyle. It is a witness to this world of the next world, which is the real world. Now, as we get started, let me be very clear about something. This is point number one. I want to make sure I'm very clear about this. My use of money will not get me into heaven. I want to make sure you hear that. My use of money will not get me into heaven. Do not hear me say that you can buy heaven or that you can buy off God. The only thing that can ransom a sinner, which is you and me and everybody else, the only thing that can ransom a sinner is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing, nothing more, nothing less. But some of these stories that Jesus tells seem to imply that there is a connection between management and judgment. So let's talk about that for a moment. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to breeze through the first couple of stories, but uh, we're going to read the third one. But in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells three stories about being prepared for eternity, because that's really what Jesus is doing. When he talks about money, he's preparing us for eternity. And so he tells three stories about being prepared for eternity. In the first story, there's these wise and foolish bridesmaids who are waiting for the bridegroom to come to the wedding. The wise ones are prepared, the foolish ones are not prepared, and the moral of the story is pretty simple. Don't be foolish. The bridegroom is coming, Jesus is coming, so be prepared. In the second parable, the owner uh, in the story gives three stewards three different amounts of his assets to manage. And he goes away for a long time, but everybody knows he's coming back. Everybody knows he's coming back. And when he comes back, the first two stewards had invested well, they had managed well, and they hear the words, well done, and they receive reward. But the third one had not invested well. He had not managed well. He had been lazy, as God calls him, and he, in the end, receives punishment. And then the third story is about sheep and goats. And we read these words starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, and take note of these words, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you look after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now again, notice what, what, what the king tells them. Now come, take your inheritance. An inheritance is not a wage. 
It is not earned. An inheritance is a gift that you receive because someone dies. That's what an inheritance is. You and I were sinners. And our sin deserved the wrath of God. A just God must punish sin. But a gracious God sent his son in the flesh to take our place and to take the punishment that was due us. And Jesus went to a cross and the judgment that we deserved was put on him and his perfect righteousness that we didn't deserve was put on us. So you don't buy heaven. You don't purchase salvation. It was purchased for you. It is a gift. You don't merit it. You inherit it. And you inherit it because you become a son or daughter through your faith in Jesus Christ and your baptism into him. Here's another thing to notice. The sheep have no idea or concept of merit theology. In fact, they say, listen to what they say to the king. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me also. So the sheep aren't boasting. The sheep aren't back there saying, yeah, nailed that. The sheep are simply and consistently seeing their hearts overflow to others because their hearts have been changed by grace. They do what they do because they love the king. And because they love the king, they love who the king loves. And that means more than just saying, oh, my heart goes out to them. Bless their hearts, those poor people. No, when you love who the king loves, you give. You give to them. You do something. And so even though my money can't get me to heaven or get me into heaven, Jesus seems to be implying, and here's the second point, that my use of money can keep me out of heaven. That my use of money can keep me out of heaven. Now, let me... Let me I don't, I don't want to, I'm treading on a little bit of thin ice here, so I want to be careful. We do have to interpret these parables and all of Jesus' parables with the, the whole backdrop of his teaching. And so I want to be very clear on this. There is one sin that fully condemns, and that is the rejection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the sin that fully and completely condemns and damns. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that unless you believe I am who I claim to be, to be. You will die in your sins. I want to be very, very clear on that. But in preparing people for eternity, what Jesus seems to be saying is that one of the clearest signs that you have enthroned me on your heart is that you have dethroned greed in your heart. That you have dethroned the way the kingdom of this world handles money. In other words, let me put it a different way. The way you handle your money in this world is one of the clearest indicators of whether or not you trust Jesus for the next world. Let me give you a couple of stories that I think illustrate that point or make that point. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who one year has this bumper crop. Now his barn is already full. He's got a big barn and it's already full. And by the way, his neighborhood is full of hungry people. But you know what this guy does? He tears down his old barn and builds a bigger barn so that he can store more 
for himself. And one day he dies and God calls him a fool. A few chapters later in Luke chapter 16, there's a story of another rich man and at his gate is a beggar by the name of Lazarus. And this rich man doesn't do anything to hurt Lazarus, but he doesn't do anything to help him either. And this rich man dies and he goes to a place called Hades where he is in torment. Now, in neither of these stories does Jesus tell us of all the wrong things that these guys did. He doesn't go through the laundry list and point out all the wrong things that these guys did. What he does tell us is that they didn't do the right thing. The stuff of their sin was the sinful use of their stuff. And the problem is not that they were rich. The problem is that they were just rich. They saw themselves as entitled owners instead of entrusted stewards. I remember when I was younger, my grandparents owned a farm over in northwest Arkansas, and we'd go down there quite a bit, go over there quite a bit. And, and when we'd go down there, there was plenty of places to play. But in particular, there was a stream, a creek that flowed near their property and into a nearby river. And most of the time, the creek was, or nearby lake, and most of the time, the creek was good water. It was nice and clean. But I remember a few times us going down to the creek and the water in that particular part was brackish and dirty and there was debris building up. Of course, you know what was happened, right? The, the waterway, the flow of the water was blocked, right? And so the water was coming in. It was flowing in, but it wasn't flowing through. You see, God created creation to operate on receive, and give, that, it, that things flow in and then things flow through. And so in nature, when you find moving water, that's usually the clean water, the pure water. And you and I, get this, you and I are designed the same way. You and I are designed to operate on receive and give. We are called to be channels, streams, creeks, rivers of God's blessings and if you become a dam of God's blessings, something starts to pollute your heart. So here's a good question. If you don't own it, why did God loan it? If you don't own it, why did God loan it? Why does God trust you with what is his for a season? Before we get to that, there's a legend about a man who had some gold and he took that gold out into his field and he buried it next to a tree, he dug a hole, buried it next to a tree. Well, every week he would go out, dig up the hole, dig up the gold in the hole, take the gold out, stare at it, and then put it back in the hole and bury it again. Every week he would do this. Well, a thief noticed his behavior and one day when the man wasn't out there, decided to go out, dig up the hole, take the gold and run off with it. So when the man came out that next week, dug up the hole, his gold was gone. It was missing. And he wailed so loudly that his neighbors heard. And one of his neighbors came over to see what was going on. And the man explained to him what had happened. And the neighbor said, well, what did you ever do with your gold? And the man said, well, nothing. I just came to stare at it. And the neighbor said, well, then why don't you just come out and stare at the hole? If you don't own it, why does God loan it? 
Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then he goes on to say in verse 34, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, what God wants, and then all your other needs will be met as well. So here's the amazing thing. I can't use money to get into heaven, but my use of money can put treasure in heaven. My use of money can put treasure in heaven. Here's the reality. It doesn't matter whether you are wise or you are foolish. In the end, you are going to die. But a fool is going to leave everything behind in a barn. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that is going to make you probably say something to the effect of, why in the world would you do that? Several years ago in Sydney, Australia, a young father decided to sell his family car because he needed to pay off some debts. And so he got $15,000, $15,000 in cash for this car that the next day he was going to use to pay off some, they were late on their mortgage. And so he was going to pay that. And then he was going to pay off some other bills, $15,000, going to pay it off the next day. Now, I don't know why. But for some reason, he chose not to put it in the bank. And instead of putting it in the bank, he chose not to do even something like hide it under the mattress or hide it in the closet. I don't know why he decided to do this instead of those other things. But instead of doing those things, he decided to put the money in the oven in their kitchen. Because he's, I guess they never used their oven. And so he thought that was the safest place to put it in the oven in their kitchen. You can probably already guess where this story is going. His wife comes home that day and she decides she's going to do something different. So instead of cooking in the microwave like they usually did, she decided to preheat the oven to make some chicken nuggets for their two daughters. And in the process of doing so, she burned up $15,000 in cash. Now I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking the same thing. You're thinking, what fool would put his treasure in a place where it will burn. You just took the words right out of Jesus' mouth. What fool invests in a place that is destined to burn? Jesus says, don't be that guy. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can send treasure on ahead. Not, not that kind of money, but you can send treasure on ahead. So increase your heavenly portfolio. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Tell me we haven't, that the last six months or so haven't been evidence to that. But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Here's the reality. You are either moving toward or away from your treasure. 
You are either moving toward or away from your treasure. If your treasure is in this world, then you are moving away from it. But if your treasure is in the kingdom of God, then you are moving toward it. And we want to be moving in the direction of the the kingdom that's coming because here's the coolest thing about stewardship. My use of money can bring heaven to earth. My use of money can bring heaven to earth. You see, heaven is on the way. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. He says in verses 28 and 29, I assure you that when the world is made new, that word new is a really cool word, literally. I'm talking literally. If you read the word in the Greek, it literally means Genesis again. Genesis again. That's literally what the word means. And you remember back in Genesis 1, the world was good, the world was right, the world was the way God wanted it. Well, one day that is coming again. One day Jesus is coming again to make all things new, to make it Genesis again. And Jesus says that when that day comes, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne and you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life life. Because here's the thing, Jesus isn't asking us to escape the world. Jesus is asking us to join in the mission of God to redeem and to renew the world. Because I read the syllabus and at the very end in Revelation 21 verse 5, God says, behold, I am making everything new. And we as a church full of stewards, are to witness to that coming reality. The owner is coming back. Everything is going to be made new and right. The kingdom will be established. And what we're doing as we manage God's trust fund is we're not just marching into heaven, but we are marching into the world to give the world a glimpse of heaven, a glimpse of the kingdom, to let people in the world know that the real kingdom is on the way. As Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter six, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the gospel is more than if you die tonight, do you know where you will go? The gospel is also, and if you wake up tomorrow morning, do you know what you will do? Well, yeah, you do. Because as managers of God's trust fund, you and I will use what we have been blessed with to partner in the mission of God to spread the name of Jesus all over the world. Now, just to be clear, I am not saying that if you will be generous, God is going to give you a whole lot of money. That is not at all what I'm saying. I do not believe in a prosperity gospel. Here's what I am saying. What I am clearly saying is that in every single story, when the manager comes back, when the owner comes back, and he's coming back, but when the owner comes back and the steward has been faithful, the owner says, well done. Receive your reward and enter into your master's happiness. 
Maybe some of you are thinking, well, Josh, you've given me a lot to think about today. No, 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 no. God has given you a lot. So think about it.